0: Welcome to Babel, Translating the Middle East, a podcast from the Middle East program at CSIS. Here on Babel, we take you beyond the headlines to take a closer look at what's happening in the Middle East and why it matters.
1: This week on Babel, John speaks with Dr. Dan Jurgen about the global energy transition. Then, John, Natasha, and I speak about how the transition will play out in the Middle East.
0: To translate some of what's happening in the Middle East, this is is Babel. Dan Jurgen is the vice chairman of IHS Market, a director of the Council on Foreign Relations, a Pulitzer Prize winning author for his book The Prize, The Epic Quest for Oil, Money and Power and the author of a new book The New Map: Energy, Climate and the Clash of Nations. Dan, welcome to Babel. Thank you, glad to join you today. I was surprised to read in your book that fracking was only first commercially successful as recently as 1998, and within 10 years, it had completely changed the energy industry. Has there ever been a demand-driven
2: shift that worked that quickly, and could there be? I don't think so. I think we'd have to say that what happened with fracking is certainly the biggest energy innovation of the 21st century. And it really happened fast. And a lot of people, including a lot of people in the Middle East, were quite taken by surprise. And even the people who promoted and developed it never imagined at the beginning that it could achieve the scale and have the impact that it has had. In 2008, the United States was importing 60% of its oil. Today, the United States is the world's largest producer of oil, world's largest producer of natural gas, and exports both of them. So it's quite an amazing change. There have been other times in history when big new volumes of oil have come into the market rather unexpectedly. And usually when that happens, you do have a price collapse because the supply overwhelms demand. And that's what we saw here. But it is really quite remarkable that it happened so fast. But also the other side of innovation is innovation takes a long time because basically, It was one guy that I talk about in the book, George P. Mitchell, who became obsessed with the possibility of fracking in 1982. It took 16 years to get to the first breakthrough and another five years to get to the second breakthrough. And people said to him, you're wasting your money, you're wasting your time. All the textbooks had said it wasn't possible. Then it turned out it was possible.
0: Could we see that kind of innovation on... The consumption side, whether it's with electric cars, renewables, hydrogen vehicles, and fuel cells. Could we see that kind of innovation affecting the way people use energy around the world?
2: Yes, I think electric cars is very interesting. The first commercial Tesla Roadster appeared on the road in 2008 and was kind of considered a novelty. And now you have General Motors saying that they're going to be out of gasoline cars by 2035. German automakers saying sooner than that. So that's happened pretty quickly. And there too, it was something based upon a battery that was invented in an Exxon laboratory in 1976, because at the time people thought the world was going to run out of oil. So we needed something else. And then in 2008, the first one appears. But this is now happening pretty fast. It is unlike fracking, which was driven by the market. A lot of this is really driven by governments and government policies.
0: One of the things I found striking in your book is you estimated that by 2050, you'll have 2 billion cars on the road. You're still going to have 1.4 billion gas-powered vehicles, which is the same number you have now. We have governments making tremendous commitments toward climate goals and everything else. But the reality of the centrality of gasoline-powered vehicles, in your estimation, is going to be with us for
2: more than three more decades. Well, it's because cars remain on the road a long time, 12 years on average, so some will remain 15 years on it. And it's going to take a lot more money to create the infrastructure for all of this. And one of the things also that I don't think people are looking at is, well, what does this mean in terms of materials? Because you've got to build these things. So a thousand pound electric battery requires about 500,000 pounds of earth to be moved We talk about big oil, so there'll be big shovels, so you're going to need whole new supply chains, and everybody's going to rush into this at the same time. Now, it can be accelerated. If governments want to put more money in and make even tougher regulations, they can speed it up. There'll be pushback because, among other things, there are going to be big job losses as a result of electric cars. The United Auto Workers estimates 30% of auto worker jobs will disappear, but maybe it will be not 1.4 billion, maybe there'll only be a billion gasoline cars on the road. But you're not going to change this fleet overnight because the fleet only changes over 6% or so a year.
0: So you're in the energy business, I'm in the Middle East business. Let's talk about how this affects things in the Middle East. For Middle East oil producers who count on the world consuming hydrocarbons and have grown rich on the world consuming hydrocarbons, how does this energy transition play out in the Middle East, pumping more oil at lower prices? Are their net incomes likely to rise or fall as we go through this process over the next several decades?
2: You know, first of all, there is a change. You can remember when they used to say, we want to save the oil for our grandchildren. Well, now the grandchildren are in charge, and they're thinking about this in monetary terms. So they know what's going on in terms of energy transitions. There are kind of two different responses among the producers. One is diversification. Abu Dhabi has really been in the leadership role in that. Back in 2000, almost all their GDP was oil-derived, now 60% non-oil. Obviously, Saudi Arabia has vision 2030. It's much more difficult to diversify an economy the size of Saudi Arabia Also, 2030 is only eight and a half years away. But on the one hand, it's diversification. The other, they're listening to what's being said. They see a Biden administration, which looks like it's going to constrict. We see that now on federal land leasing and so forth. They look at the major companies, many of which are pivoting to saying we're not going to explore anymore. We're going to reduce our oil production by 40%. So they still see that there's going to be a significant demand. So they see themselves, on the one hand, diversifying, on the other hand, also being the residual, low-cost, low-carbon producer of oil and gas that the world will need. So I think it's a kind of double response. Now, we're talking mainly about the Gulf Arab countries. Iraq's in a different position. Iran's in a different position.
0: Do they end up in a knife fight to get all the oil out as quickly as they can when prices are still higher? Or are they going to be able to negotiate an agreement?
2: I think the world will still be using a lot of oil and gas in the year 2050. And they are thinking in terms of market share that this is their opportunity to increase their market share and that they will be the residual low cost suppliers. I think the Russians are thinking the same way.
0: And do you think that their net income will be relatively where it is
2: today? Will they watch their income tail off as demand tails off? A lot depends upon prices. A little over a year ago we were looking at negative prices and today prices around $70 a barrel and people talking 80, people talking 100. So much depends upon price, but volume times price equals revenues. And note that the UAE is going from they're in 2018, 3.1 million barrels a day. They're headed towards 5 million barrels a day. So I think they're thinking market share. Saudi Arabia is pointing to 13 million barrels a day, maybe more. I think they're thinking market share. And they're watching carefully to see what happens to the U.S. Because really, oil now is dominated by the big three, Saudi Arabia, Russia, and the United States. And there are a lot of people in the Biden administration who don't want the U.S. to be an oil producer. But the problem is that if you do that, the banned fracking policy is really an import more oil policy. And of course, that's beneficial to countries that export oil.
0: You mentioned before that there's very little investor interest in oil right now. People have said we're not going to support greater exploration. Is that a blip? Is there so much money in the long tail of the energy transition and the fact we will be using oil? for many decades to come that you think people will put money
2: into it? Well, the investors themselves are under pressure and the growth of ESG investing, which is a big topic for us at IHS market.
0: Environment, social governance.
2: To bring a whole new set of criteria There are certainly investors who say, you know, we're not going back to oil and gas. I think for a lot of investors, it was a combination of ESG and, frankly, low returns because you had two price collapses in there. One is a result of oversupply, the other, the result of the shale crisis, the shale catastrophe, the plague. So the investors left. So what's happening now is the shale producers are saying, one, there's a second shale revolution, which is the revolution in relationship with investors. We have to give money back to investors. And we have to have ESG policies. You have some oil and gas companies who have net zero targets for 2050. How they get there is a big challenge. And so I think we're going to see over the next year or two with oil prices up, It was a very easy decision to say, I'm not interested in this sector. I think if you're running a pension fund and you need returns, and this is a profitable sector, I think we'll see some of the investors come back, but you're not going to have this kind of mad rush into oil and gas that we've seen before. But I think that if you particularly look at the European super majors, they've made the decision that they really have to respond to the European zeitgeist investor zeitgeist and talking about becoming energy companies rather than oil and gas companies.
0: And and in Middle Eastern terms, we are used to, for three quarters of a century, energy security was centered in the Middle East.
2: Well, I think energy security changes. I think a bellwether of it was the attack on abcake that occurred in September 2019 in Saudi Arabia. If that had happened 10 years earlier, there would have been panic in the oil market impact on the market was almost negligible and that's because I think that thinking about energy security has changed because you now have the US as this major source and it just changes it. But I think there are other areas where you could see energy security coming in as an issue and I think it's an issue for the Chinese in terms of the South China Sea and I think we're going to see I don't know if we're going to call it mineral security or supply chain security as the world does shift towards renewables, people notice that China dominates the lithium battery supply chain. So I think we're going to see geopolitics and energy come together again, not so much about oil, but more about the dependence on the supply chains for net zero carbon. I was in a meeting with a senator, and he said, well, we need to right-size our commitment to the Middle East. And I thought, he would not be saying that were it not for the shale revolution because if the us was importing 60% of its oil the world would look different than it does
0: now people say that the us shale has a horizon and either for environmental reasons or supply reasons the shale is not going to to be able to carry the us through the end of the century other people disagree as you look forward do you see China and the United States having similar long-term interests in US energy or are they very different?
2: First, China wishes it had the position the United States does because China now imports 75% of its oil. And one of the things I write a lot about in the new map is about the South China Sea. And I think a lot of that issue about the South China Sea is about the transit of oil to China and the security of supply from their point of view. But China imports oil and natural gas from the United States. It's one way to deal with the trade imbalance. In some ways, I think they like it. It's different with Russia. I was at the St. Petersburg International Energy Forum, which is Putin's version of Davos, and They said, why don't you ask the first question? So my question for him was going to be about diversifying its economy away from oil. By accident, I mentioned shale. And he starts shouting at me in front of 3,000 people about how terrible shale is. And I realized there are two reasons. One, for him, shale means that the US is competing with Russia to supply natural gas to Europe. And secondly, he sees shale as an adjunct to US foreign policy. And frankly, the sanctions on Iran In 2012, people thought they would fail because the world needed Iranian oil. It turned out the increase in U.S. oil production one year was more than Iran was exporting. U.S.-Chinese relations are really deteriorating fast, as you know. And people in the Middle East say, don't make us choose. Because, of course, for those Gulf producers, China is the big market because they're sending oil east, not west. But the security relationship is with the U.S., And you hear the same thing throughout the world where suddenly the drawbridges are going up between the U.S. and China, and that will affect the Middle East a lot.
0: If China is reliant on Middle Eastern energy and the United States isn't reliant on Middle Eastern energy, whether it's 2030, 2040, does that change the way both the United States and China think about the Middle East? Because China has this direct economic connection and the United States... Doesn't.
2: I think you see China developing blue water naval capacity. Is it going to see that it needs to step in to assure the security of oil coming from the Gulf? They've gotten closer and closer to it. It may not be welcomed by the countries, but I think national interest, strategic interests would propel the Chinese into a stronger role. And that's why I put so much emphasis on the South China Sea. Because that's where the Chinese fear of the U.S. Navy interdicting oil supplies is so central.
0: You are the best big picture historian I've ever read. And a lot of your books have talked about energy and about the U.S. efforts to secure energy. And a lot of the story of securing energy has been about the United States protecting the import of oil from the Middle East to drive the U.S. economy. As you look forward the next 30 years, do you see there ever being a time when the U.S. imports large amounts of energy from the Middle East again, or has that time passed?
2: You raised a point before, which is how long does this shale resource last and how much of it will either be shrunk by regulation Or just by natural processes. Recovery rates are not very high. Shale is not everywhere. So, is there a date when it becomes less important? And if the US is still using a lot of oil, 20% of an electric car is plastics. Canada is the major source of imported oil for the United States. So, Canada would be the first place. But of course, the political opposition to pipelines, that might be a limit on that. I don't want to put a date on it because I don't know what that date would be and anyone, I guess, would probably be wrong. But if you started to see a real slide in U.S. production again and demand remained, you know, relatively high, then we could start importing oil again from the Middle East. But it seems kind of at the horizon now.
0: Fascinating story. Dan Jurgen. thank you very much for joining us on Babel.
2: Thank you. Pleasure to be with you.
1: Next up, John, Natasha, and I talk about how the energy transition will play out in the Middle East. I'm struck by the dynamic in the Middle East of having both an economic relationship with China and also a security relationship with the United States amid deteriorating relations between the two powers. John, you wrote about the importance of this three-way relationship in your book, The Vital Triangle, over a decade ago. How has the status quo changed since then? Have the primary interests of Middle Eastern states changed?
0: I think where the change has really come is more on the US China side when there was really a hope still 10 years ago that China would become a more responsible actor perhaps more of a partner in global affairs and and now China's really emerged as more of a rival at the same time China has much deeper relations with the Middle East now than it did when I wrote the book which I think was about 2008 Trade has skyrocketed, largely driven by oil, but there's also been tremendous contracting that the Chinese have done in the Middle East. There's the import-export business out of Dubai, which has flourished. So China is much more of a commercial presence, but its relationship to the United States is not as a potential partner, not as what the U.S. government used to aspiringly refer to as a responsible stakeholder. China is increasingly seen as a freeloader and a competitor to the United States at the same time. And for a lot of people in the US government, that's a real threat on both levels. It's not that you want China to put military forces into the region as a competitor to the United States, but there is a sense that on the softer side, on surveillance equipment, on 5G and infrastructure, that China is building its influence for itself without contributing to greater security in the region.
3: There's also a lot of choke points when it comes to the actual trade. In terms of about 60% of China's trades in the Middle East and Africa goes through the UAE, for example. And at this point, it's really the United States that's providing those security guarantees against Iran or against terrorist attacks, which, as Jurgen also points out, increased dramatically, I think, over 90 attacks between 2001 and 2016 on energy installations alone. There's a lot to be said for the fact that the U.S. has been providing these security guarantees and China has basically been capitalizing on them for probably the past 20 years at least.
0: Although China argues that they don't worry about a threat from Iran and the U.S. creates the threat from Iran by its adversarial policies, the Chinese view is that security in the region should be responsibility of the region. I'm not sure that their Gulf Arab partners agree with that, but it's certainly appealing to the Iranians. China is able to bridge some of the deepest divisions in the Middle East, for example, developing growing relationships with both Iran and Israel.
3: And I should note the same goes for Russia. So I think Saudi Arabia and other Gulf states, including MBS, the young crown prince in in Saudi Arabia also sees Russia as a competitor, but also potentially a mediator, not just amongst Gulf states, which it's already allied with, but also with Iran and other adversaries as well, which makes Russia a global player in a way that the US just simply can't be.
1: Are there circumstances by which oil producing Middle Eastern states change their calculus over the next few decades? Could they welcome a greater Chinese security presence in the region? Could the United States be replaced in this regard?
0: I don't think the Chinese have a capacity to do what the United States does. There's a way that they supplement the United States with weapon systems the U.S. won't sell. The threat of buying Chinese weapon systems is seen as a way to unstick U.S. weapon sales. But a world in which the United States has a lower security presence in the Middle East is not a world in which China replaces the United States. It's a world in which the Middle East works out more of its security challenges on its own. In some cases, that may be more limited warfare. In some cases, it may be more warfare and more civilian suffering, as you've seen with the Saudi and Emirati intervention into Yemen, which was supposed to be quick and easy in 2015, and is still ongoing.
3: I just got back from the Gulf. In speaking to various individuals that work at think tanks there and government representatives, they just simply don't trust the United States anymore, which is a bit scary. I mean, certainly China cannot replace the current US security footprint in the Gulf. But as time goes on, as there's more calls from the Biden administration, administrations after that to pivot to Asia, whatever that means, then there might have to be just a growing push towards increasing ties. And that could be military ties and surveillance ties with China, with Russia, and with others. And I think at this point, the administration is looking to its allies in the region, Jordan, Egypt, Gulf states, to sort of resolve their own tension. So you saw this with normalization deals with Israel, but you also see it with closed door talks between Iran and Saudi Arabia even, and Iraq even trying to be sort of the table setter for those uh, negotiations. But whether that actually leads to greater peace and stability in the region, or as John was alluding to, potentially more instability and future potential for war remains to be seen, I think.
1: Speaking of allies, though, John, you mention often that when you speak with representatives of US allies in Asia, they see a U.S. drawback in the Middle East, an increase of Chinese presence as a major threat.
0: They do, because their view is that if the U.S. pulls out of the Middle East and a rebalance toward Asia, and China has a greater footprint in the Middle East, that gives China more leverage over them because then China is responsible for their energy security in the Middle East rather than the United States. They trust the United States to do it in a disinterested way. They don't trust China to do it in a disinterested way. And the view in Japan and in South Korea and elsewhere is that a U.S. rebalance out of the Middle East and toward East Asia, if it doesn't account for a growing Chinese security presence in the Middle East, actually strengthens China in East Asia rather than helps ham in China in East Asia because the U.S. makes its allies more vulnerable in the process of focusing more on China itself. So
1: leaving the question of U.S. and Chinese involvement for now, Dr. Urien explained that the price of oil will be the critical factor that affects the incomes of oil-producing Middle Eastern states as the world moves through the energy transition. How is the Middle East likely to fare if state incomes fall sooner than expected? Or what happens if they hold?
3: Well, there's suspicions from various analysts in the energy markets that peak demand could arrive sooner than we think, so probably 2034, in which case these Gulf states are going to have to diversify very, very quickly. They're going to have to reduce their dependence on oil, and that includes reducing their bloated public sector, which is primarily dependent on oil revenues. So right now, you see sovereign wealth funds increasing and saving up for a rainy day you also see not just within the Gulf, but amongst the oil industry altogether is massive investment in petrochemicals. I think it was last year, there was a report that there's about a $400 billion investment in petrochemicals, because there's this thought that demand growth for plastics and for chemicals produced from these hydrocarbons will continue, even though alternative energies or this glut in the market created by shale from the United States, or other new discoveries will just continue to grow.
0: One of the things, though, that we don't know is what happens to the incomes of these states. Even if prices go down, I would expect their market share would go up because they are very low cost producers. There may be greater markets, as Natasha said, for petrochemicals. So you may see them producing the same amount of oil, or even more oil, but less of it goes into fuel and more of it goes into other products. I could also see an environment where there is more production than the world needs. There's a glut in the market, and even small gluts in the market can really plunge prices down because you have to store all the extra oil. So to me, there's a lot of uncertainty about where this goes. One of the other possibilities is that there is a shortage of oil because exploration stops, demand continues to go up, And because there's investor pressure against investing in oil, the world may have a shortage of oil before it has a glut of oil. I think there's a lot of uncertainty about how all this develops, how all of it plays out. I think there's likely to be discontinuities. I think we're going to see more volatility over the next 10 years in demand for oil, use for oil, price of oil. But as Natasha points out, in the longer term, I think every Middle Eastern government understands that what has largely fueled Middle Eastern economies, whether they're oil producing or labor producing economies, over the last 50 years, the production of oil is not going to be nearly as secure a source of revenue for the next 50 years as it was for the last 50 and they have to pivot hard toward a more diversified economy, a more robust economy. The subtle thing is I think they have to accommodate themselves to a world that is less focused on the Middle East and how that plays out and what it means for both Middle Eastern security and global security is something that I think we have to put a lot more attention toward.
3: And it's really uncertain because there could be just elements that are unpredictable. For example, I don't think anyone could have predicted that shale in the United States would have been commercially available to the extent that it is in 1998. And I still remember movies coming out talking about how it was toxic to people's health, et cetera, et cetera. And it just didn't seem to be something that would be commercially viable. And today it's completely changed the landscape of the new map as as Dr. Jurgen points out. And it's created in some cases stability, but in some cases more volatility. You also saw about 10 years ago with the Fukushima nuclear reactor disaster, that that really scared Germany, for example, away from nuclear energy. And that increased its desire to look for natural gas to Russia, when you saw that with Nord Stream. So there are certain elements to history as it plays out that can't necessarily be predicted, but it might end up stabilizing the market for the foreseeable future.
1: On the other hand, you can see that these shocks in the short term that are unexpected can create pretty substantial problems. I mean, inherent in the names of all of these plans, Vision 2030, Vision 2040, is the assumption that oil prices will remain stable and helpful up until a certain point. But you could argue that people could predict but just refuse to things like the COVID-19 pandemic that plunged oil prices. And now in Kuwait, their general reserve fund that is used to plug the deficit across the board is consistently failing to accomplish that goal. And as a result, you're seeing downgrades and it's, it's credit rating. So I think we can look at what might happen over the long term, but I think there's greater volatility in the short term than people might be willing to accept.
0: There's a lot of volatility, but the underlying reality is all of these countries have huge resources in the bank. Now anybody with huge resources in the bank that starts spending it down wonders how quickly do I spend it down? Will prices come back up and mean that I'm spending in the short term, but not the long term? I mean, those are the hard choices that states are going to have to make. The Saudis have more than $450 billion in the the bank, and that gives you a cushion. But the Saudis are looking at how quickly do I spend that down and how quickly will the other activities bring up resources? How quickly can I pivot the workforce from government employment to private sector employment? How quickly can I create a globally competitive and viable public sector? Because what you don't want to have is you're spending down your reserves and you don't have the private sector activity picking up the slack. That's the challenge that states have, not that they don't have the money. I mean, Kuwait has a future generations fund. They have the money. How quickly do you spend it and on what? How do you ensure you're spending on investments and not consumption? That's the hard choice that they all have to make. And there's considerable uncertainty. When it
3: comes to Saudi Arabia and other Gulf countries, would you say that COVID-19 put that effort for diversification or impetus for diversification in overdrive? Because what we saw last year was that barrels of oil were going into the negative.
0: It represented a splash of cold water for people who assume that everything could stay the way it is. That being said, prices have gone down before, and we've seen states tighten their belts, and then prices go up, and the first thing states do is loosen the belts. What we've seen certainly in Saudi Arabia many times is that the first hint of social unrest, they increase government salaries they give people bonuses they they try to make life easier for the citizenry ultimately the real challenge is less a fiscal challenge than it is a psychological challenge can you change the relationship of citizens to the state how you do that what the new social contract looks like what people's expectations are both for what their role is and what the state's role is Is often harder to shift. I think a lot of governments see it as necessary. There is a lot of excitement in Saudi Arabia about what Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman is doing among young people. Can you sustain it? Can what the UAE is trying to do empower young people? Does that get young people to think differently or does it create a sense of entitlement? You know, a lot of these Gulf states. People have grown up with a tremendous sense of entitlement. And how do you shift that? And I think it's the psychological shift that is harder than the fiscal shift. You can make decisions about the fiscal shift. You can't make decisions about the psychological shift. You can encourage it. But that's where the real challenge is.
1: John and Natasha, thank you for joining me.
0: Thanks for listening to Babbel. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can find more analysis on this topic linked in the show notes on the CSS website, and you can find us on Twitter at Mideast.